Just the one verse I want to mention by way of introduction to this message today, and it is Galatians chapter 1, verse number 8. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. And the word in the original there for accursed is anathema. There is an exclusivity to the gospel message. That is to say, the gospel of Christ is the only true gospel. Now, there are many false gospels, many erstwhile gospels, but there's only one saving message, and it is the gospel of justification by faith alone, which, of course, was the great watchword of the Reformation period. Today, Reformation Sunday, we would reaffirm our belief in this gospel and our commitment to this great message, the truth that Martin Luther called the mark of a standing or falling church, justification by faith alone. Now, contrary to what many people think and is often alleged, the Reformation was not about a bunch of people splitting off from the true church to form splinter churches. That's what's often said. People were being taken in a new direction doctrinally, and they were leaving the true church of Christ in doing so. But that is not true. The Reformation was all about the rediscovery and the restatement of scriptural truth, which had for generations, centuries in fact, been mired and buried beneath pagan rites and medieval superstitions. And the fault line, if you could call it that, which was created by Martin Luther and others, was not over some minor area of dispute doctrinally, but over the question of whether sinners were justified before God by faith alone, which in the Latin term is sola fide, or on the other hand, by a mixture of faith and good works, which earned merit before God. Those are the two polar opposites. Salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, upon the merits of Christ alone, or salvation by Christ and by works of merit. Luther and all of the reformers, indeed, came down on the side of the first of those the doctrine taught by the Apostle Paul in his great expositions in the epistles to the Romans and Galatians. In the debate between Rome and the Protestant reformers, no one ever denied on either side that sinners have to be justified by faith. There's no argument there. The controversy back in the 16th century particularly in this doctrinal area, and it's still the same controversy today, was and is over one word, and it's the word alone. Justification by faith alone. Essentially, Bible Protestants will say, on the basis of Scripture, that God justifies sinners. That is, He pardons their sins and reckons them to be fully righteous before God, solely and only on the ground of Christ's merit. 
which is a merit that is imputed freely to them and received by them by faith alone, sola fide. Now, in opposition to the Reformers' statement of doctrine, the Council of Trent, which was a great convocation of the Roman Church, whose dogma, by the way, was ratified again in the 1960s at Vatican II, the Council of Trent declared the following, quote, If anyone saith that justifying faith is nothing else but confidence in the divine mercy which remits sin for Christ's sake alone, or that this confidence alone is that whereby we are justified, let him be anathema. So that's very clear. There's a curse has been pronounced on those who say that when they have full confidence in the divine mercy only for Christ's sake, that has the curse of Rome upon it. And that, by the way, comes from the Council of Trent, Session 6, Canon 12. It is a matter of fact that the controversy in which Martin Luther was involved in the 16th century and in which we are still involved today because it is the matter of how men are justified before a holy God that divides the true from the false today. This was the controversy that the Apostle Paul was engaged in with his opponents. And this is really what lies behind his words in the book of Galatians. Paul had to deal with those who preached other gospels. And the first chapter is given over to this statement and over to this idea that there's only one gospel and anybody preaching any other gospel has the curse of God upon them. You see this in verse 8 and also in verse 9 of Galatians chapter 1. He says in verse 9, as we said before, I'm repeating this, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. The force of that word anathema is let him be damned in the lowest hell. We've already seen Rome's anathema, its great curse is on those who will say justification is by faith alone. And yet when we look at Galatians chapter 1, we're struck by the fact that Paul announces an anathema, a curse, on any who do not preach the gospel that he proclaimed. And what was that gospel? It was the gospel of justification by faith alone. His gospel and this other gospel cannot both be true. There's a great dichotomy, there's a great division between them. And you'll notice that each has pronounced a curse on the other. So either you're going to be cursed by that medieval system which says that faith alone is not sufficient to save you, or you'll have the curse of God upon you when you try to claim that there's merit in human works of righteousness. I'm with Luther. I'm with the Apostle Paul. I'm with the Reformers on this issue. It is indeed the article of a standing or falling church. The doctrine of justification by faith alone. This is the gospel of the Reformation. And it's the gospel that we preach today. And I just want to note three things about this particular gospel from Paul's words. You'll notice not just here, but also in Romans 
Paul defined the gospel. He clearly expounded it. In those letters that I've mentioned, Romans and Galatians in particular, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote about justification. And he carefully explained what it was. And you'll see, for example, in the book of Romans and also in Galatians here, certain words that are repeated. The word just and justify and justified and justifier and justification. These are terms that he employs and explains. He expounds these terms. Now, much has been made of the fact that the word alone is not seen in the New Testament attached to the word faith. Whenever you say salvation is by faith alone, someone will come back at you and say, well, faith alone is a Protestant invention. Faith alone is not really stated in those terms in the Bible. Well, actually, someone who says that isn't really engaged in semantics. Why? Because there are many scriptures that refer to believing unto salvation and believing not as being the damning factor. The Lord Jesus said this in Mark 16, verse 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Notice what makes the difference. The difference. It's not baptism. It's the believing. It's not he that believeth not and is not baptized. It's he that believeth not. Because it's believing that is the important thing. Faith alone. It's not stated in that way. But you'll see that it is stated obviously in different ways. For example, just look at these following scriptures. Romans chapter 1. Verses 16 and 17. Paul was able to say, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now read on. For therein, that is in that gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, that just shall live by faith. Now, just go a little further to chapter 3. You'll see there's an exposition of this doctrine from verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all, them that believe. For there's no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And you read on down here, and he says in verse 28, just to close, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Now, if it's by faith without anything else, that's faith alone, isn't it? That's faith alone. But let's go further. Chapter 4 teaches the same thing. He references Abraham. And he talks about Abraham being justified. He believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Verse 4, Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, see that, no works, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Righteousness. Now, of course, 
Where there's true faith, there will be true works. But it's not the works that justify. The works don't save you. It's Christ that saves you. And if Christ has saved you, the works will follow. Again, chapter 5, verse 1. A verse my father always used in, in, in announcing his testimony. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no mention of anything else. It's faith alone. And this continues... In chapter 10, when he talks about righteousness once again, Romans 10 and verse 3, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Again, No man is justified by works, according to to Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. It is by faith. And he announces it further in chapter 3 of Galatians. From verses 10 and 11. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident. For the just shall live by faith. There it is. Faith alone. Apart from the law. Not of works. Him that worketh not, but believeth. This is faith alone. This is sola fide. And so the use of mere semantics in argument will not change the force of Paul's great doctrine. You and I are not justified by works. So it is by faith alone on the merits of Christ. We know this from other scriptures. I'm sure we know the verse well, many of us. Ephesians 2, chapter 8, or Ephesians 2, verse 8 and verse 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's clear, isn't it? Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to God's mercy, he hath saved us. So away with any idea of self-righteousness, of the merit of human works. Works follow faith, but those works are not meritorious. And it is another gospel which says otherwise. And so when Paul began to expound in Galatians, when he wrote to that church, He made it clear that the gospel that he had preached was the only gospel that should be received. The true gospel was under attack in Galatia, and Paul certainly defended that gospel. He certainly defined it in those verses and in other verses. But not only did he define the gospel, he declared it. And he declared it with great boldness. You see, when he says in Galatians 1 verse 8, any other gospel, he goes on to explain in verse 11 the origin of that gospel. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. He says, I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is... A gospel is divine in its origin. And the truth of that gospel was 
written upon Paul's heart. He was convinced of its truth by the Holy Spirit. And when we come to verse 16 of Galatians 1, he says this, that it pleased God to call him by his grace to reveal his Son in me, that in order that I might preach him among the heathen. What's the gospel? It's the gospel that has to do with him. It's the gospel of Christ. It's the gospel of the work of Christ. And Paul had preached that message. He declared that message with great blessing, despite his own frailty and weakness, which he references, by the way, in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 13. Ye know how through infirmity of the flesh I preach the gospel unto you at the first. I have news for you, unless you already knew it, you probably did, your minister is imperfect. Your minister is not perfect. He doesn't come down from heaven like an angel. He's not superhuman. He's not any different from the rest of you. He has the same feelings as you have, exactly the same. Which is why we need the Lord's grace and the Lord's help, because we are but frail human beings. This is why we need prayer. The Apostle Paul himself, many times you will know, asked for prayer. Brethren, pray for us. Why did Paul ask people to pray for him? Because he was frail and feeble. And he admits it here, that he preached through infirmity of the flesh. He said in another place that he didn't have any power of himself, but the excellency of the power was of God. We're not sufficient for these things, Paul said. We're not able. We don't have the ability. We need the Holy Spirit to help us. And Paul did preach the gospel with great power, despite his own frailty. He wasn't perfect. Far from it. But notice in Acts 16 and verse 6, the Bible tells us, now when they'd gone through out Phrygia and the region of Galatia, there it is, that's where we're, we're parked. That's where we're camped out, Galatia. And we're forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. Paul preached the word in Galatia. But it wasn't just one church. It was a number of churches. Look, at, look there back at Galatians chapter 1 and verse 2. He's writing to all the brethren which are with me, writing from them, unto the churches, plural, of Galatia. We often talk about the Galatian church. No, the Galatian churches. There were a number of congregations that he was writing to, not just one. Again, Paul preached to more than one church when he preached the gospel, as 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 1 reminds us. He was talking about giving, and the teaching that he gave was for all the churches. Listen, now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. The churches of Galatia. Paul preached the gospel. He declared the gospel to these various churches. And notice how the Lord prospered the preaching of the gospel of Christ at the hands of Paul. He made these churches to grow, to be established, first of all, and then to grow. And so Paul's not about to change his message. 
he still believes the same gospel years later. In chapter 6, verse 14 of Galatians, puts it like this. But God forbid that I should glory or boast, save or accept in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. He still believes this same message. He has not abandoned it. He's continuing to preach it. And what is that message? It's justification by faith alone on the ground of Christ's merits alone. That's the heart of Paul's gospel. And he declared it everywhere he went. You can read Acts 13.39. You read Acts 16.31 when he talked to the jailer at Philippi. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. That gospel that Paul preached worked. Let's not think that we need something more than the gospel. We're not seeing churches filled. We're not seeing many people saved. We're not seeing a mighty work done. So let's change something. That's the reasoning and the rationale of many today. Let's dispense with the evening service. After all, hardly anybody comes anyway. So let's do away with it. Let's just forget about it. And of course, if you follow that logic, you'll soon do away with the morning service as well. For lack of interest. Oh, the devil is against the gospel. He's against the preaching of the gospel. He'll do everything he can in his power to stop it from happening. But that gospel that Paul preached, if you look at the New Testament, you'll find that it turned the world upside down. That gospel shook the world again at the Reformation through Luther and others. And that gospel today is still the power of God unto salvation. God can and still and will use it to effect great results by its preaching and teaching. Paul's gospel has to be our gospel. Because God's curse rests on the proclamation of any other message. No matter who the messenger may be. J.C. Ryle, a great English bishop, went to a church in Stradbrook, down I believe it's in Suffolk, it's down in the southeastern part of England. And when he was there as the pastor, he had a new pulpit set up in the church. They had it built. And there was a carpenter there working on that pulpit one day. And Ryle had asked this carpenter not only to make nice, a nice appearance on the pulpit, nice beveling and so on, but he wanted him to carve into the top part of the pulpit a verse which he did with his chisel. Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. So that any man standing there, including himself, going to preach, would see that every time he stood behind the desk. Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. I better preach the gospel. And when Ryle saw that carving finished in the pulpit, he got so stirred in his soul that he reached down into the carpenter's bag and found his chisel and underneath the word not, he gouged out a huge trench. I'm sure the carpenter didn't like that very well, because he'd really put a lot of work into that. But he gouged out this trench under the word not, as if to emphasize, Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. I better make sure that it is the gospel. Along with a good friend, Mr. Stephen Toms, I visited Stradbrook Church 
And I wanted to, to see if what I'd read in the book was true. So when I got into that church, I went straight for the pulpit. And as I got into the pulpit and looked there, the pulpit has gotten aged and worn through the years. The colouring the color has gone out of the pulpit. But you can see all ever so faintly underneath the word not, that trench that Ryle had dug out with that chisel. I thought, wow, what, a, what an amazing thing. No matter who the messenger is, he better make sure he preaches the gospel. And Paul himself said, whether we or any other man, even any of the other apostles, or even an angel from heaven. Now, you wouldn't expect a wrong message from an angel, would you? You'd expect an angel to preach the truth. But he said, even if an angel comes with another message, let him be accursed. Just beware of trusting the messenger above his message. I would always say that to you. Every man has feet of clay. And by God's grace, I will never preach any other gospel, but I could. I could. If the Lord took his hand away from me, only God knows what I would preach. So don't trust the messenger above the message. Make sure that what he says is, thus saith the Lord. And that's what people did in Berea. The men of Berea were noted for this. They searched the Scriptures daily whether those things were so. Don't just take it as read because a man comes here and says he's a free Presbyterian or is an evangelical. You examine his message by the Scriptures. Make sure it matches up. Paul shows the importance of the message. It is from God. From verse 10 to verse 12 of Galatians chapter 1, this is emphasized. He didn't get the message from some storybook. It was by divine revelation. The gospel which was preached of me, he said in verse 11, is not after man, for I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a divine message in its origin and in its authority. It's a message from God. It's all important. We better be sure that we're preaching it. Pray that the Lord will help me and help all of our ministers always to hold to the true gospel and not to be turned aside after another gospel. But there's one other thing I want to mention here concerning the gospel of Christ. And that is that the apostle not only defined it, and we must define our terms, and he not only declared it, but he defended it. He defended it. In some of our literature historically, there has been a text that has been used, separated under the gospel as one of those, set for the defense of the gospel. Not just set for the preaching of the gospel, set for the defense of the gospel. The gospel has to be defended. Now, of course, it is defended by preaching it. Spurgeon once said, If I had a dangerous lion, the way that I could be protected and any property that I have could be protected is by opening the cage and letting the lion loose. That'll take care of itself. I don't need to defend the lion, as it were. He'll defend himself. But you have to let the lion free. The preaching of the gospel must be done, and that gospel will defend itself in a sense. But we also are called 
to vigorously defend the message. In other words, contend with the enemies of the gospel and call them out when they preach another gospel. Don't just let it fly. Don't just let it sit. But call them out. I remember Dr. Paisley used to tell us all the time in his church, he says, if I'm gone and some other man ever comes to this pulpit and he preaches something other than the true gospel, you have my permission to get up into the pulpit and trail him down from there. Pull him down from the platform. Don't let him speak. We are to defend the gospel. And that's what Paul did. Philippians 1 verse 17 contains the words, I am set for the defense of the gospel. Paul contended with enemies. He defended the gospel against all attempts to water down its message. And it is most interesting to see how Paul actually did this in Galatia. Look here in this same epistle where he talks about the one only gospel, that any other gospel has the curse of God upon it. What happened in chapter 2? Let's read it. From verse 11. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. In other words, he opposed Peter. He spoke against what Peter had done. That's explained in the following words. Verse 12. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. In other words, these Judaizers, Peter saw them coming, saw Peter eating with the Gentile converts, and he withdrew from them. And it says, and the other Jews dissembled likewise with him. The word dissemble has to do with hypocrisy. So they were involved in an exercise of hypocrisy, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation or hypocrisy. Now look at this, verse 14. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, notice that, publicly, if thou being a Jew livest after the manner of Gentiles and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now you must understand what's going on here. Peter, a disciple of the Lord, was gathered with those who were Judaizers, or, or rather with the Gentiles who had forsaken Judaism. They'd received the gospel. But then these Judaizers come along, and they believed, of course, that you had to keep the law to be saved. You had to be circumcised to be saved. And so Peter compromised the gospel by withdrawing from the Gentile converts, giving the impression that he agreed with these Judaizers, that he agreed with their insistence that circumcision was necessary for salvation. And that's what Paul was rebuking 
He was bold in the defense of truth. How bold Paul was. Some might have thought, well, how dare he rebuke Peter? But he did rebuke Peter, a disciple and an apostle named by Christ himself. By the way, one who was an older man than himself. And one who had actually, unlike Paul, accompanied with the Savior for three years. One who was mightily used at Pentecost. Paul might well have said, well, he's, he's a man of such great standing. I, I can't say anything about him. But no, he realized Peter is not infallible. He's an ordinary man. Peter was not the Pope. Never was. And even if he had been a man with greater authority than the other apostles, Paul would still have defended God's truth against what he was doing. You know why? Because the gospel is non-negotiable. It's non-negotiable. Now what had Peter done? Well, verse 12 makes it clear what he had done. Before that certain came from James, Peter did eat with the Gentiles. These are Gentile converts, believing now in justification by faith alone. But when they were come, that's the Judaizers, he withdrew and separated himself, that is from the Gentile converts, fearing them which were of the circumcision. He was afraid of these Judaizers. But Paul was not afraid to call them out. Now, let's be clear here. Peter did not preach against justification by faith alone. He didn't. He didn't preach another message. He didn't preach another gospel. He didn't make any false statements about the gospel. But by his actions, by withdrawing from eating with the Gentile Christians because of the fear of the Judaizers, because the Old Testament forbade eating with Gentiles, Peter's action undermined the gospel. Basically what Peter was doing by withdrawing from those Gentile converts was suggesting that justification was not by faith alone in Christ's work, but by observing the law, because that's what the Judaizers taught. So what did Paul do? He defended the gospel by publicly rebuking Peter. We live in a day when men are mealy-mouthed. When they're afraid to say anything about anything. And there's some who would try to stop the mouths of those who preach the truth by saying to them, well now, you must always go to somebody privately. If they preach something false, you just go to them privately and speak to them about it. No. If somebody does something publicly, preaches false message publicly, I have every right publicly to rebuke it. For example, when Billy Graham was going around the country compromising the gospel, I didn't have any obligation to go and personally talk to Billy Graham or write to him. Nor did any other evangelical preacher. He's doing things publicly that can and should be rebuked publicly. And that's what Paul did here. Look at verse 14 again, just to emphasize it. Paul says, But when I saw that they walked not uprightly, According to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, publicly, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? In other words, why are you telling these people by your actions that they should be following the Judaizers? Some might say today, well, Paul was threatening the peace of the church. Paul was threatening the unity of the church. 
Surely you don't want to be involved in bringing disharmony into Antioch just on a doctrinal point. And albeit not even for just for speaking against it, for just taking certain actions that suggested that you weren't in favor of that gospel. No, Paul didn't reason like that. Paul was just like that great preacher centuries later who said, from peace bought at the expense of truth, good Lord, deliver us. If I have to abandon truth to preserve the unity of our denomination, I may as well give up the ministry. Just leave it altogether. Because I'm, I'm actually betraying the gospel and I'm betraying the God of the gospel by doing that. You see, when the gospel message is at stake, we have to speak out. We have to defend it at all costs. Someone comes preaching another gospel, you call him out. Whether it's preaching legalism that you're saved by the law, works righteousness, or whether on the other hand he preaches a message which means that there's no sanctification, antinomianism, there's no law at all, licentiousness is the order of the day, do whatever you like, live whatever way you want to, that's also a threat against the gospel. We need to stand up for the gospel of grace. And what a wonderful message it is. Salvation by Christ alone, through faith alone in his precious blood. How are we saved? By putting all our trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus. Bonner wrote, Thy works not mine, O Christ. Speak gladness to this heart. They tell me all is done. They bid my fear depart. To whom save thee? Who canst atone for sin? Who canst alone for sin atone, Lord, shall I flee? Thy death, not mine, O Christ has paid the ransom due. 10,000 deaths like mine would have been all too few. Thy righteousness, O Christ, alone can cover me. No righteousness avails save that which is of thee. To whom save thee? Who canst alone for sin atone, Lord, shall I flee. And Bonner's expressing here beautifully the faith of God's elect. We are pardoned from our sins. We are accounted righteous in the sight of God through Christ alone. That's the gospel of the Reformation. That's the simple truth. It's the gospel that Paul preached. It's the only gospel. And we must defend it. We must declare it. We must always define it. And may the Lord use it mightily. For the honour of his name. May the Lord save souls through the continual preaching of that message. I'm not looking for any other means of building the church. But the preaching of that gospel. If we look to something else. To increase the number in the church. We're looking in the wrong direction. You could have a church full of empty vessels. You could have a church full of trees that are not the trees of the Lord's planting. You could have what Spurgeon called a field full of toadstools rather than mushrooms. We want true converts. And true converts can only be gained through the preaching of the true message. May the Lord help us to spread it abroad that there's life in the living Lord. Amen.